0: Welcome to the serial audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of book 1 in the Generations Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full-length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com/alive.
1: 30 We run uphill. There are many footprints in the dust. The biggest ones are Aramofsky's. The medium sized ones are from O'Malley and Yang and Spingate. The smallest ones are from me and Bellow. I see the same bones, the same burn marks on the walls, the same open archway doors. Through those open doors, I see coffins. I know corpses lie inside them. There are new footprints as well. Along the corridor's edges, those are from El Safani. The twins are once again out in front of us, ready to be the first to face any danger. El Safani is shirtless, as is Bishop. All the Circle Stars, Bodden included, wear only pants. They have covered their faces, chests, arms and hands with caked gray dust. The twins had beautiful caramel colored skin. Bodden's was a light brown. Viska's had that pinkish hue. Now all five of them are the same color. Bishop is at my right side, the thigh bone clutched in his hand. Aramovsky and Gaston are behind us. Baudin and Viska bring up the rear. We move in silence for a long time. We move fast, or at least as fast as we can with Aramovsky and Gaston. They were slow to begin with and are already tiring. They will have to keep up. We have a long way to go to reach the place where we met Bishop and his marchers. When we first made this trip, we were walking. We didn't know where we were going, and we moved cautiously because we didn't know what would come next. Now, the distance goes by so much faster, although there's still plenty of time to think. Latu told me her coffin was already open when she awoke. I haven't had a chance to ask the others about their experience. Did anyone else have to fight for their life? Bishop, tell me about when you woke up. He keeps moving fast as he explains. We were in a cradle room, Elsifani, me, and Coyoto. The door to our room was shut. How did you get out of your coffins? I mean, your cradles. He shrugs. They were open. Same as with Latu. There was no pain? What woke you up? His brow furrows. It's strange to carry on a conversation with him now. His eyes look so white, in contrast with the gray paste caked on his skin. I think there was a little tingling sensation, he says. I woke up kind of slow, a little bit at a time, you know? The cradle was open, so I got out. Sounds like the same mild electrical shock that woke Spingate. And the door to your room, how did you get that open? We didn't, he says. After we were awake for a little while, it opened by itself. We walked out and started running into other groups. That's when I got everyone organized. No snake tube attacking him, or Latu, or Spingate, or anyone else. No needle, no pain. So why me? We walk on in silence. It isn't long before we leave the archways behind and see nothing but blank white walls on either side. We will be at the place where our two groups met much sooner than I anticipated. I hear Aramovsky breathing hard behind us, hear Bodin hissing at him to pick up the pace, and I can't help but smile. We keep moving. I figure we're more than halfway there when Bishop glances at me. Savage, you know what's funny? I think you can call me M now, Bishop. He considers this, then shakes his head. I can't remember much, but I know what the word savage means. It fits you. I blush, he doesn't mean it as an insult. Coming from him, from a circle star, I think it's a compliment. Maybe it is, but not to me. I think of how I lost my temper back in the coffin room, how I pointed the spear when I yelled at Bishop and the others. Was I doing that to make things clear? Or was I implying a threat against anyone who would not do what I say? Bishop grins, his teeth seem so bright compared to his darkened skin. Savage, you kinda lose track of things a lot. You know that? I nod, sorry. So, do you wanna know what's funny or don't you? Sure, I say, what's funny? If we took a vote now, with the people in this group, I wonder who would win. I don't break stride, but his comment chills me. What does he mean by it? He came with me to get the bracelet. But it was a close thing. The next time he disagrees with me, will he go his own way? And will he take the circle stars with him? I look over my shoulder at the people following us. How long have we been awake? Gaston and Eramovsky look the same. But in the short time since we came out of our coffins, the circle stars have transformed into something else. It's not their gray color alone. It's in the way they walk, in their hard eyes. They carry bones as weapons and look ready to use them. If we voted now, Bodin, Visca, and El would choose Bishop. I face forward and keep walking, my grip tightens on the spear. The thought of Bishop trying to take over, it makes me angry. Just like it made me angry when Yang wanted to be the leader. Just like it makes me angry when Aramovsky plays his word games in front of everyone. I was ready to stab Aramovsky when he suggested he should be in charge. I was ready to kill him. Bishop was the leader once. Does he feel the same anger toward me that I feel toward Aramovsky? That I felt toward Yang? Out of all of us, only Bishop and I have taken life. I realize why his comment affected me so. If he really wanted to lead, he wouldn't need a vote. We're far from O'Malley and the others. The circle stars seem to follow Bishop, not me. If he kills me here, he can make up any story he likes when he gets back, then simply declare himself the leader. Maybe someone would call for a vote, and maybe Bishop would make them back down. He used force to take over his group of marchers. What's to stop him from doing it again? I shake my head. I'm being crazy. Bishop wouldn't hurt me. He likes me. He said so. It's not as if he tricked me to come out here, away from O'Malley and the others. I asked him to come, basically made him come. Still, I hope we finish this search soon so we can rejoin the group. My crazy thoughts, how I lose track of things. Since I woke up, it's been so hard to control my emotions. I'm happy and laughing one second, sad the next, paranoid and ready to kill someone the moment after that. I wasn't like this before. I'm sure of it. I don't need to remember the faces of my parents to know I was a good girl. The way my mind seems to change directions. That frightens me even more than Bishop does. After a time, I see the intersection where Yang died. A wide splotch of mostly dried blood slush is all that remains. Our footprints lead away from that spot. Bishop glances my way. I told him how I killed Yang. You must realize that this is where it happened. El Safani looks back at me, asking if we need to stop here. I point the spear straight down the hall. Keep going. They do. When I pass by the intersection, I'm careful not to step on the dried blood slush. Down that hallway to our right is an archway door, and through it, a coffin that holds Yang's body. We leave the intersection behind. From then on, no one says a word for a long time, until we reach the second intersection, the one where our two groups met. Instead of going straight like we did before, we turn right, toward where Bishop came from. My legs recognize the difference instantly. Just like in the garden, we're now walking level. We must be going down the length of the cylinder instead of up the curve. We walk for a long ways, following two neat, dense rows of footprints. When Bishop was the leader, He made his people march in orderly lines. Those footprints make it easy to retrace his path. It's dimmer here. The ceiling doesn't glow as bright. In some places, round patches of it are completely dark. I think of Rot. I think of the monsters. Hallways start to branch off. There are so many directions we could explore. But we came here for a specific reason. We follow the footsteps. Sometimes we go straight. Sometimes we turn. It isn't long before we see bones. The carnage begins with a few skeletons. At first, I think Bishop and the others overreacted when they told us how bad it was in their area. Then, it gets worse. The archways gape open, the stone doors neatly out of the way in their wall slots. We can see into the poorly lit rooms that we pass by, see the horrors left by the grown ups. We had bones outside our coffin room. Evidence of an intense battle. But it was nothing like this. Here, room after room is littered with death. Some of the dead are skeletons, some are withered corpses of dried flesh. Everywhere we look, it seems, skulls grin back at us. Many of the bodies wear the clothes they had on when they died. These grown ups did not dress like us, they all wear a one piece outfit that is both pants and shirt together. The outfits are in different colors, orange, yellow, blue, red, some greens, and once in a while, purple. Dark stains dot the fabric. Judging from the fact that those stains are darkest where an arm or a leg is missing, I realize most are from long dried blood. Some rooms have tangled bodies stacked so deep, I can't even guess how many lives the twisted limbs once represented. Other rooms don't have full skeletons at all only teetering piles of bones, arms and legs severed before or after death, thrown together haphazardly like children's toys. One room makes me stop and stare, because there is nothing but skulls. They are neatly stacked into a shape I recognize, the same squat-stepped pyramids that were carved into my coffin. The grown-ups turned death into art. I look at Aramovsky wondering what he thinks of his angry gods now. The skulls frighten him, but also excite him. He finds all of this fascinating. As we walk, as we look through open doors, things get worse. Skeletons hanging from the ceiling by metal rings around their wrists and ankles. A room with nothing but the bones of a 100 left arms arranged in pinwheels of overlapped hands. A room where skeletons sit in chairs, facing each other, held in permanent poses by stiff curling wires. El continues to walk ahead of us, but the twins don't seem as brave anymore. They're scared, just like me, just like Bishop, just like the rest of our group. I think we're all waiting for the skeletons to move, to laugh, to rise up and come after us. After a while, I try to stop myself from looking into the rooms full of mangled people. But every time I fail, I notice a pattern. A few of the shriveled dead still have dried skin on their faces and foreheads. On those corpses, I can sometimes make out forehead symbols. And every symbol I see, every last one, is an empty circle. My symbol. I stand closer to Bishop, close enough that I keep bumping against him as we walk. So many dead, so many bones, broken, blackened, shattered, sawed, and chopped. Why did the grown-ups do this to each other? Up ahead, the twins hesitate at an intersection. We catch up to them, and I see why they stopped. My stomach flutters at the sight. Two neat rows of footprints, going both left and right. Bishop, I say, pointing to the tracks, Did you cross over your own path on the way here? He scratches his cheek. A little of the dried gray dust flakes away. I shiver as I realize the dust covering the circle stars is basically the same stuff as the dead bodies we've passed by. Yeah, I guess, he says. We turned around a few times. Maybe we walked the same halls more than once. Is he lost? Did we waste precious time coming here? Bishop. Focus, I say, we need to find the haunted room. You said it had three pedestals and a ladder, remember? I'm hoping those details will jog his memory. But as he again scans the footprints in the hall, I don't see a flicker of recognition. He leans into an archway, looks around, leans back out, he seems confused. It's close to here, he says, I'm pretty sure. Gaston steps forward. I know where the room is. He speaks quietly, as if he's afraid that simple statement will somehow anger Bishop. Gaston's eyes keep flicking toward Bishop's bone club. Maybe Gaston realizes, like I did, that we're far away from the others, that Bishop and the Circle Stars could find a way to make him vanish, and no one would ever know. Bishop stares down at the smaller boy. I brace myself for yet another argument. This time, however, There isn't one. Bishop sighs and nods. I really don't remember, he says. Let Gaston take over. Gaston lets out a held breath, sags as the tension leaves him. You got us most of the way, Bishop, Gaston says. For once, he's not poking fun. I could be wrong, but I think he's trying to make Bishop feel better about getting lost. Gaston examines the footprints, thinking. He points down the dim hall that leads right. At the corner up there, we turn left. The end of that hall, we turn right, and we'll see the door in the floor. He looks at me, speaks quietly. On the way there, Em, there are four archways. I wouldn't look in the third one if I was you. He shifts his gaze to Aramovsky. Both of you, just don't look. I see Bishop shudder. The twins stare at the ground. Viska and Bodin drift close to each other. So close their shoulders touch, as if the memory of what they saw drives them to seek comfort. Whatever waits in that room, it must be beyond anything we have seen so far. How it could be worse, I can't imagine. Bishop nods. Gaston is right. I remember what's in there. You don't want to see it. Elsafani, lead the way. The twins head down the hall. We follow. We turn left. Bishop is giving orders now. Maybe he does wanna take over. I'll need to be careful and pay attention to everything he does. We pass four archway doors. At the third one, I think of following Gaston's advice and keeping my eyes straight ahead. No, I don't have the luxury of ignoring things. I am the leader. I need to know everything that we face. I look in. There are shriveled up bodies, but they are much smaller than those of the grown-ups. Smaller than us, smaller than the ones we saw in the coffins with the torn lids. So tiny, I easily could hold them with one arm. Babies, hundreds of tiny corpses, dangle from the ceiling. So thick, I almost can't see the ceiling itself. They hang from chains that end in metal hooks, slid through their rib cages. Cracked, dry skin is peeled away from their bodies, showing the bones beneath. Clumps of fallen flesh cover the floor like some horrid scattering of snow. Seeing this makes my body rebel, makes me want to vomit. My stomach churns. I put a hand on my knee, try to catch my breath. This is wrong, so wrong. How could people do something so evil? Told you, Gaston says. Next time I tell you something, Em, maybe you should listen. I nod slowly. Maybe I should. He takes my hand and pulls me away. I squeeze his hand back. There is something about this boy that makes me know I can rely on him, no matter what. In that way, he reminds me of Lotu. We make the final right hand turn, not far ahead. The hallway ends in a white wall with a small plaque, a palm print embedded in a rectangle of some kind of dark glassy material. On the floor below, It is a square of smooth black metal. Bishop points at the square. That's the door, he says. I had assumed it would be stone, like every other door in this place, unless that melted metal we saw earlier was a door. But we have no way of knowing for sure. The handprint in the plaque, there is a golden symbol in it, the jagged circle. The same symbol that is on the foreheads of Gaston, Spingate, and Beckett. Gaston walks to the plaque, strides to it more accurately. He presses his palm to the handprint. The black door in the floor hums, then rises up on a hidden hinge, revealing a narrow tube leading down. A ladder runs its length, vanishing into deep shadow. He crosses his arms. His smile is so smug, it could make Aramovskis look humble by comparison. The time for being quiet and modest is apparently over. Gaston is back to normal. That's how it goes, he says. It opens for me. Some people are more important than others, it seems. Elsifani talks, the boy first this time, then the girl. Bishop tried it first, then we tried. But it didn't work for us. Bishop is glowering, waiting for us to finish. He doesn't like the fact that Gaston can do something he can't. What about Beckett? I ask, did he try? Gaston nods, it didn't work for him. I thought perhaps the door recognized symbols somehow. But if Beckett can't open it, it's not about the symbols alone. Is it something particular to Gaston? Or maybe particular to only certain people? I want to try, I say. Gaston again puts his hand to the print. The door closes, he gives a deep comical bow and steps aside. Miss M, please give it a try, he says. I press my hand into the depression, feel the cool material against my skin. Nothing happens. Gaston holds the back of his hand to his forehead, pretends to be faint. Oh Dear, our fearless leader is denied, whatever will become of us now? He is so strange. We just saw butchered babies, hundreds of dead people, maybe thousands and he's making jokes? I want to shake some sense into him. But perhaps jokes are his way of dealing with this. It's certainly better than how I reacted, which was to almost throw up. Aramovsky walks to the plaque. He presses his hands to the glass. The door whines. It opens. Bishop laughs and shakes his bone club. Ha, I guess Gaston isn't so special after all. Gaston's face shifts from happy smile to glaring scowl. When he smiles, he is cute. When he looks like this, so hateful and furious, he is ugly both inside and out. Aramovsky breathes out a sigh of amazement and delight. The door opens for me because I am chosen. I knew it. He looks at Gaston with an expression of deep respect, of acceptance. As are you, Gaston. You are also chosen. I apologize if I offended you earlier, my brother. Gaston snarls. I would have never guessed something like this was so important to him. I brought Aramovsky so he wouldn't talk to the others while I was gone. So his words wouldn't create more problems. Now he has gained some kind of stature. I wonder if I will ever make the right choices. The ladder waits for us. I want to get the bracelet and get away from this slaughterhouse but I don't want to rush things and make even more mistakes. Bishop, you said this room is haunted? He nods. His jaw muscles twitch. He will go down there with me, but he doesn't try to pretend he's not scared. What does that mean? I ask. You're not saying you saw ghosts or something, right? Bishop shrugs. I turn to Gaston. Well, Gaston? Ghosts? The small boy swallows. He's no longer in a joking mood. The room is weird, he says. It's small and dark. You feel heavier, like an invisible hand is squeezing you, trying to make you sit. Our legs got tired fast, and we both felt like, like something was watching us. I wanted to get out of there. To be honest, Em, I don't want to go back down. He's asking without asking if he can stay up here. I would love to let him do that, but he's the smartest of us. I need that big brain of yours, I say. I tousle his black hair, trying to make light of the situation. What if there are things down there that won't work for anyone but you? Maybe there's something you and Bishop didn't see, something like the hidden panels in the archways. Those things would work for me as well, Aramofsky says. Or perhaps we'll find things that only work for me. He's right. Besides, if I leave him up here with the circle stars, Who knows what he'll tell them? I'm afraid of Bishop because he is big and strong. He could hurt me. I'm afraid of Aramovsky, too, but I'm not sure why. I'll go first, I say. Then Bishop, then Gaston, then Aramovsky, then Elsifani. The twins step forward in unison and start down the ladder before I can even say a word to the contrary. Maybe they're just as afraid as I am, but if so, they hide it well. Or maybe they are actually brave, like Latu was. I look at Baudin and Visca. You two guard the door, okay? The two gray-faced people nod. I start down the ladder.
0: You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin. And engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin MacLeod.